Good morning. I want to start with a little piece of free advice that has nothing to do with this lesson. If you turn 47 years old, don't play basketball with 18-year-olds. Now we'll move on to the lesson. But that's valuable. Write that down. I don't have a PowerPoint this morning because I've been tinkering with how to say and how to deliver this message up until last night. And I don't know that it needs a PowerPoint. I will tell you the title if you're taking notes and you enjoy taking notes. Lazarus, come forth is the title of this morning's lesson. I also want to tell you that before anybody became a preacher, they were a person. Anyone who ever stands before you to preach God's Word, they're, they're a person first. I certainly am. And, and what I'm about to, to say to you this morning from God's Word is something that I struggle with. In fact, if I'm being really honest, I struggle with it a lot. So I don't stand before you as, as anyone who has mastered what we are going to discuss this morning, but someone who struggles right alongside probably of all of you. The dictionary defines the word appetite in the following ways. A desire for food or drink. A desire to satisfy any bodily need or craving. Or a desire or liking for something. A fondness or a taste. Appetites by their very nature, as I'm sure you're aware, are a very natural and essential part of human existence. They're designed by God to keep us alive. To keep us healthy. To keep us happy to some degree. Until they go from being a part of our lives to running our lives, right? Until they go from performing their God-given purpose to stepping beyond that. Do you struggle with your appetites? Like I do? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 would put them into three categories. The lust of the flesh, those are the things that the body wants and needs. The lust of the eyes, those are the things we think we need, that we see and we, we want that. And the pride of life is, is what we want to feel about ourselves. That recognition, that appreciation, that popularity, that status perhaps. All of our appetites fit into one of these categories. And the Bible tells us in this same passage, if we love these things, if we cling to them, if we allow these appetites to, to be the driving force in our lives, we do not love the Father. Did you hear that? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That if I'm driven along in life, it doesn't matter how much I come to church, but if I'm driven along every day in my life by what I want, then I don't love the Father. It doesn't matter how loud I sing. It doesn't matter how much money I put in the plate. It doesn't matter anything. Now maybe you're different. But discipline and self-control do not come easily or naturally for me. 
And with this in mind, as I, as I struggled to think about how to talk about this, how, how to let God's Word shed some light on, on the struggle that I have and you probably have with all of the many appetites that threaten to take over your life, I found myself in Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be there all morning. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Your Bible probably has a subheading that says the rich man and Lazarus. Mine does. A couple of of things about this text before we dive into the text itself. We don't know whether this was a parable or a true story. We just don't know. Scholars and commentators remain very divided on this issue. There is some pretty good evidence for both of these views. And ultimately, uh, for our purposes especially, it really doesn't matter. So that's the first thing I want to admit and say this morning. I don't know if this is a parable or if this actually happened. Number two, in its context in Luke chapter 16... This story or parable seems to be driving home an ongoing conversation that Jesus is having with His disciples and with the Pharisees regarding money and stewardship and the difficulty of of bringing all of that together in a lifestyle that honors God and His law. Verse number 14, you might notice if you look up just a few verses, tells us that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all the things that Jesus was saying and they ridiculed Him. So remember the context. We're talking about money. We're talking about stewardship. We're talking about being faithful with what God has entrusted to us. Number three, this text pulls back the curtain, if you will, on the afterlife, doesn't it? In some ways, more than any other text that we have in the New Testament. But I'm really not that interested in that particular aspect of this passage in today's lesson. I'm more interested, and I believe Jesus is as well, in what happens on this side of eternity. Because what happens on this side of eternity determines what happens on the other side of eternity. For you and for me. So let's dive into the text. Verse number 19, there was a rich man, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Let's talk about what we're told about this man. We are told, number one, that he was rich. And the word that's translated rich literally means wealthy, abounding in material resources. Maybe the best Greek lexicon that we have available says this about the word, that it pertains to having an abundance of earthly possessions that exceeds normal experience. It's more than most normal people have. It's rich, it's wealthy, and then it adds this, and this is very important. It means that this person does not need to work for a living. That's what the word means. That's how rich we're talking about here. Do you have to work for a living? I do. Most of us do. This man didn't. He's that rich. Now it might be worth saying that that this man's not described as relatively rich. You know, if you you add up all the the global incomes all over the world, you know, relatively speaking, this, this man 
is very rich. No, no, no. He's rich right here and right now in his culture. He's wealthy. He has everything that he could possibly want and more so. How rich was he? Well, it says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. I don't know about you. I don't even like purple. If you're wearing purple, I'm sorry. I don't think I own anything purple. I don't like the color. I prefer blue. But if you lived in the first century, anywhere around this time, the color purple was incredibly rare. The only way you could get something purple was to, to, to have somebody dye it purple. And the only way you could dye it purple was, was this particular animal, rock snail, as I understand it, the murex, if I'm calling it the right name. You gathered about 10,000 of those things together. And several people worked for, for days and days to crack these shells open and get a drop or two of this purple dye and maybe they could make you a jacket. But if you wanted one of those purple items of clothing, you couldn't just walk into the store and say, I like the purple one. They'd make that for you because you handed them a lot of money. So if you had purple, you were rich. Most people who weren't royalty didn't. We talk about this linen that he wore, the, the fine linen. Bible talks about this in several other places. Billy mentioned it in his class this morning. It was produced with the flax that grew on the banks of the Nile in Egypt. It was especially soft and white. And it was very sought after as an article of luxury. So expensive was this fine linen that only princes and priests and those who were very wealthy could wear it. Purple and fine linen is what this man wore. He was clothed in it. And the idea is, every time he went to his closet, every morning, he picked out something that was either purple or fine linen. That's how rich he was. I don't know much about expensive clothes. You might. So I had to Google expensive clothes. And it worked. And the first thing that came up was Gucci. And maybe you have an item of clothing named Gucci, but I bet you don't have a whole closet full of it. And here's why I bet that. I saw a sweatshirt, a hoodie Gucci sweatshirt for $1,250. And I'm going to be honest with you, it looked like something you could buy at a yard sale. I saw a, a Gucci zip-up jacket that looked like something you could get from Old Navy maybe. $2,200. Both of which were so ugly that you would have to pay me at least that amount of money to wear them in public. They are, they are made by people and for people who want everybody to know how much money they have. That's all. It's the only reason anybody buys those clothes. Ladies, if you want a pair of Louis Vuitton pumps, you better have at least $1,000 and probably more like two. If you want that Armani cashmere jacket, it'll cost you $3,000. You might say, hold on Armani, I just want a t-shirt. Well, that'll cost you $267 and it's still ugly. There are expensive clothes in our day and time. I don't wear any, do you? I go to Walmart, Target, Old Navy. If they don't have it, I don't need it. If we're having a particularly good year, we might splurge on some J.C. Penney. 
But that is it. I don't know anything about this lifestyle. But can you imagine? Can you imagine being this rich? That if somebody says, hey, that sweatshirt's $1,200, well, get me three of them. Not me. The Bible says he fared sumptuously every day. The word translated fared means to gladden, to make joyful, to be glad or delighted, to enjoy oneself, to celebrate. That word alone is pretty powerful, right? You're having a good time, aren't you? I'm enjoying myself. I'm, I'm celebrating. It'd be the end of the sentence if it just said that he fared. If he fared, if he ever fared, if he ever had something to enjoy or celebrate, he'd be better than a lot of people that we know about. One commentator used the basic word of, of this phrase here to say that this man was making Mary brilliantly. Because the word sumptuously means splendid, magnificent. It has its roots in, 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 in lampposts, the Greek word, which means light of a lamp. So it's just a brilliant look at the way he has fun. Look at, look at the splendid, magnificent way that this man celebrates. For this young man, this rich man, this happened how often? Do you know that uh, there's several commentators who say that, that if you were a, a Jewish person in the first century, you might fare sumptuously once or twice a year at a wedding feast. You might. You might really enjoy that once or twice a year. How often did this man enjoy it? Every single day. One commentator says his tables were loaded with the richest dainties, the most delicate wines delighted his taste and all Things ministering to sensuality were plentifully provided. Every day this same delight returned. Every day presented a new scene of bliss. Can you imagine what this kind of life would be like today? Everything you clothe yourself with is the absolute finest garment possible. Most of my garments have holes in them. And I like them that way. That's fine. But if you were this man, that would never need to happen. Everything you eat and drink is the most delicious food and drink available. Everything you do every day is only what you want to do because you don't have to do anything. You want to go to Disney World every day? Go ahead. You want to travel around the world? You want to go to every gourmet restaurant and have every gourmet meal that they offer? You can afford it. You want to go to Paris for Fashion Week and buy everything that comes down the runway? Fine. There's no stopping you if you're this rich man. Just imagine, all of us, at least when we were young, we probably imagined this kind of life, didn't we? Oh man, I don't want to work at all. I just want to have enough money to do whatever I want every day. And somebody looks at you and says, well, you better wake up and grow up. Because you're never going to have it. Well, this guy did. But let me tell you something else the Bible tells us about this rich man. He died. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know how old he was, but he died and he was buried. 
And he ended up in the agonizing torment of Hades with an eternity of regret and no hope for relief or escape. You want his life? You want it now? Verse 20. And at his gate, the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Here's what we're told about this next person in the story or the parable. He was a poor man. The Greek word translated poor man is also translated beggar if you have a King James Version of the Bible or an American Standard and perhaps some others. The word literally means the following. Reduced to beggary. Asking alms. Destitute of wealth, influence, position, and honor. See, it's not just money. Helpless. Powerless to accomplish any end. Poor, needy, lacking in anything. Pertaining to being economically disadvantaged, dependent on others for support. In other words, this is not a person who's making his living pretending to be poor. Do we have any of those people today? Sure. Now, you and I can't really know who they are sometimes, and and that puts us in a difficult situation, but, but nobody had to wonder, well, I wonder if he's faking it. He probably makes more money than I do. No, he doesn't have any. He doesn't even have the ability to walk himself up to the rich man's gate. What does the Bible say? He was laid at it. He can't even walk. The name Lazarus literally means in the Hebrew, whom God helps. Or God, my help. And the reason that he's laid at this rich man's gate is because it was an appropriate place to lay somebody like Lazarus. Because there wasn't anything really organized and set up to help the poor in this day and time. If they were going to get help, they had to get it from somebody. Or they put him in a public place. Or they put him near somebody who they knew had plenty of money. And that's what Lazarus is up to. That's his life. Oh, except for the fact that he was also covered with sores. The word here means to be ulcerated or full of sores. And I think of Job. I can't help but think of Job when I think of this, right? Job had sores where? From the top of his head to the sole of his feet. Sounds like this man was in a very similar situation, doesn't it? Full of them. As opposed to the rich man who's, who's clothed in what? Whew. He's not hurting, is he? Everything that touches his skin is, is soft and, and beautiful. And Lazarus is covered with ulcers, afflicted with painful sores. And he desires to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. William Barclay uh, points out a very interesting possibility that I had never heard. And, and I don't know if it's true, but it's, it's interesting. He says that in that time there were no knives, forks, or napkins. Food was eaten with the hands, and in very wealthy houses, the hands were cleaned by wiping them on hunks of bread, which were then thrown away. And that was what Lazarus was waiting for. 
Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Does that sound disgusting to you? From my study, as disgusting as this sounds, this may have been the best part of Lazarus' day. Is when these stray dogs would come and give him some relief. How did Job take care of his sores? With a piece of pottery. Maybe the dogs are, are being more kind and, and more comforting. And isn't this sobering to think? They're being more comforting. They're offering him more than a man who's right here, who has the means to change his life completely. But who's doing more for him? Well, these dogs probably are. Maybe most importantly, we're also told that Lazarus himself at some point also died. You'll notice there's no mention of his burial, probably because nobody gave him one. But let me tell you what did happen for him at that point. The angels came and they escorted him. They carried him to Abraham's bosom, to paradise as we might call it. Where he no longer endured the evil things of his earthly life and was now comforted for eternity. Who would you rather be? You might be scratching your head, well, it depends. You know, are we talking about here or there? No, I'm not asking that. Who would you rather be? Here's some things we're not told, but we know. We're not told the name of the rich man. Don't you think that's interesting? Whether it's a parable or whether it's a story, we, we get Lazarus's name, but we don't get the rich man's name. And I, I don't know why, but let me suggest this. Many of Jesus' parables and stories were intended to, to get people to really examine who they were. And so maybe instead of giving the name and, and putting all the blame on you know, some specific person, Jesus says, I'm going to leave this open because I really want you to ask yourself, could this be you? I'm not going to tell you who he was because I want you to think that maybe it could be you. No name. You'll also notice Jesus has absolutely nothing negative or condemnatory to say about this rich man's financial situation. Did you notice that? Does Jesus anywhere in this story accuse this rich man of obtaining his wealth dishonestly? Does he accuse him, uh, directly at least, of, of gluttony or being a drunk? Does he accuse him of being completely cruel and, and completely devoid of any kind of generosity or charity? No. He doesn't say any of that. His, his description is completely devoid of what we might call an overtly sinful lifestyle. There's no, no mention of any of that. His financial situation is presented as just a simple matter of fact. I love what Dr. George Campbell had to say about this back in the 1800s on his dissertation of the Gospels. Listen to this very carefully. Dr. Campbell says that many who are dissatisfied with the simplicity of this story load that rich man with all the crimes which can blacken the human nature and for which they have no authority from the words of inspiration. They will have him to be a glutton and a drunkard, rapacious and unjust, cruel and hard-hearted. 
One who in impenitence or intemperance what he had uh, spent what he had acquired by extortion and fraud. That's what a lot of people will do is what Dr. Campbell is saying. They'll, they'll assign sin to this rich man that the Bible does not assign. And by so doing, he says, they pervert the design of this most instructive lesson, which is to admonish us not that a monster of wickedness shall be punished in the other world, but that the man who, though not chargeable with doing much ill, does little or no good. He didn't get punished because of all the bad, mean, cruel things he did. He got punished because he didn't do enough good. Because as Dr. Campbell points out, because he was careless about the situation of others and existed only for the gratification of himself, the indulgence of his own, here it is, appetites and his own vanity. This story is to show the danger of living in the neglect of duties and particularly the danger of considering the gifts of providence as our own property and not as a trust from our Creator to be employed in His service and for which we are accountable to Him. Wow. 1800s or not, my toes are stepped on. How about yours? We would love to think sometimes that... that, that, that Torment and, and hell is only going to be filled with really bad people, right? Not according to Jesus. We're not told this man was bad and yet here he is in torment. We're also not told that the rich man denied his crumbs to Lazarus. In fact, why, why would Lazarus be laid at his gate if he wasn't getting anything in return? Odds are he didn't deny his crumbs. He gave them to him willingly and freely. We're not told that the rich man was unkind or mean to Lazarus. He allowed him to be laid at his gate every day. We're not even told why the rich man ended up in torment. But we do know why. We know why he ended up there. For the same reason that everyone who lived and died under the old covenant ended up in that place. He did not have a living and active and obedient faith in God based on God's existing revelation to mankind at the time. Period. We know that. Jesus doesn't have to tell us that. That's why people go to torment. And that's where this man was. So he neglected something, didn't he? He disobeyed somewhere. We know that much. Now we're, there's some things we don't know about Lazarus. We're not told that Lazarus was a good person. We're told absolutely nothing about his character. If you're raising kids, you can't bring them to this passage and say, now I want you to grow up like Lazarus. Please don't do that. Because we don't know anything good about him in terms of, of character. We're not told why he's laid at this man's gate. What puts you in this position, Lazarus? Did you do something to deserve this? I don't know. And neither do you. And neither did the rich man. Doesn't seem to matter, does it? And again, we're not told why or how Lazarus ended up in Abraham's bosom. But again, do we know why? We absolutely know why. Because to the extent that he was capable of doing so, Lazarus did have a, a living and active and obedient faith 
to God based on his existing revelation to mankind at the time, which was Moses and the prophets. We know that. Now, based on these few verses, let me direct our attention to me and to you. I don't know this morning if you're rich or poor. I really don't. You don't really know if I'm rich or poor. We really don't know that much about each other's financial situation, do we? I don't know if you fare sumptuously every day, or two or three times a year, or once a month, or if you're covered with sores. I don't know. But I can tell you this. Whatever your earthly situation might be, God is paying very close attention to your stewardship of it as well as your faith in Him, regardless of it. Personally, when it comes to our lifestyles and our financial situations, I would be very hesitant to call us poor, wouldn't you? Are you destitute of, of, of wealth and, and property and, and honor and all the things that that, that word actually means? Are you, are you without any of those things? I don't know many people who are. We may not be rich beyond the normal of of American culture, but we're definitely not poor. We fall under this broad spectrum of being rich, which puts us in a group of people who will enter heaven with a great degree of difficulty if we enter at all. And like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who were the target audience of this text, we are often lovers of money, aren't we? And slaves to our many appetites. All while having an outward show of religion and leaving a trail of crumbs for those in need. In torment, the rich man pleads with Abraham, send someone back to my father's house to warn my five brothers so that they don't join me in this place of torment. Now, I want you to listen to this very carefully. If if you'll understand this part of the text, it'll help you apply it. It's very revealing. Based on this exchange, the rich man was very aware of Moses and the prophets. He's very aware. You'll notice in torment, he never raised his hand and said, I didn't know about any of this. Why am I being punished for for a life that I didn't know I was supposed to live? Nothing is said about that. Just please go warn my brothers. He knew. He had access to God's revelation at the time. And Abraham's words are very telling, aren't they? If they, your five brothers, don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced if somebody comes back from the dead. In other words... If you or they are not persuaded by God's word on this issue, then you've made your choice. And you'll suffer the consequences. One commentator had some thoughts that were very helpful here. He says, the fault lies not in the deficiency of the warnings, but in the aversion of the will. No matter whether it's Moses or a spirit from Hades who speaks, if men do not wish to hear, they will not hear, will they? 
We have as much witness from heaven as we need. The rich man was in torment because he lived for himself. Every day. And he lived for himself every day, not because he didn't know that it was wrong, but because he didn't choose to do what he knew to be right. And incidentally, Brooke pointed this out to me. It's interesting, don't you think? The rich man wants someone to warn who? His five brothers. No mention of a wife and kids. Which leads me to think maybe this is a young man whose life was cut short. Which leads me to say to this group right here, be very careful that you don't grow up thinking that God doesn't require that of me. God requires all of His people to live selfless lives. Lives of service. Lives of love and compassion for those at our gates. You know, Christians have very clear instructions, don't we, as to how to live our lives? We, we know. We've got about 25 Bibles right here on the front pew. So if you don't know, help yourself. But, but we, we live lives of, of selfishness and, and, and based on our appetites, not because we don't know better, but because we trick ourselves into thinking, well, maybe I won't get in trouble for that as long as I don't do anything bad. When we're told to love our neighbors as ourselves, do we give ourselves crumbs? Is that how we love ourselves? There's not going to be a miraculous vision where someone appears to me or to you to remind you the importance of, of living this way. It's not going to happen. God's Word says that we need to be doing it. And you might say, I, I, I'm overwhelmed. This is too much. How, how can I take care of all of these people? Well, let me just remind you, the rich man didn't receive eternal punishment for not helping everyone. He received punishment for not helping Lazarus. The one man who was at his gate, maybe every day. He looked at him as he walked into his home and thought, well, He's got those crumbs. He came back out on maybe the, the, the second month of Lazarus laying there thinking, how long is he going to be there? He really smells bad. i got to do something to get rid of these dogs. This is lower in the value of my property. I don't know what he was thinking. He was punished because he didn't do more for the one person who was laid at his gate, whose life he could have impacted dramatically if he had only cared to do it. In John eleven forty three, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth to a different Lazarus. Because he wanted those around him to believe that God had sent him. In 2021, you and I need to be praying, Lazarus, Come forth. So that those around us will believe that God has sent us. So that they will see His love and His abundant grace and His extravagant care, not His crumbs, for those He loves. We need to pray, Lazarus, come forth. So that we'll be more aware of those that God has placed outside of our gates 
that will be compelled by the power of the gospel to offer more than crumbs. We need to pray, Lazarus, come forth so that our lives are more than a pursuit of our own appetites and our own desires and our own experiences. Maybe you are sitting here this morning, you know exactly who your Lazarus is. You know their name just like Jesus knew His name. So maybe you just need to move beyond crumbs. Maybe you need to write a bigger check. Or open up your home. Or share the bread of life with this person at your gate. Or maybe you just haven't been paying attention enough to who's at your gate. Maybe you don't know who this is. Let me tell you the truth here. If you'll pray earnestly about it and you'll start looking, your Lazarus will come forth. They're there. And they need God's help just like He did. Daniel read a few moments ago from Philippians chapter 3 and I'd like to close with this passage. Beginning in verse 19, there are many who are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. And whose glory is their shame and set their mind on earthly things. You know, the word translated belly means to be given up to the pleasures of the palate. In other words, to your appetites. What about you this morning? I just want you to look back at the last week of your life. And ask yourself, if anybody has been watching, who are you living for? Who is benefiting most from the blessings, and get this right, that God has given you? Be very careful that you don't trick yourself into thinking, I earned that. Be careful. Because Lazarus may have been someone who, who, who could have just as easily been in this rich man's position. He just wasn't. What about you? What about me? Brooke and I have been praying very hard. This lesson has affected me. It's convicted me. I want to find Lazarus. And, and I want to help this person or this group of people to such an extent that it changes my life and changes their eternity. Don't you? If we all begin to pray, Lazarus, come forth. God, show me the person in my life. Maybe it's just one that I can really help. I'll give some things up. I'll give up some time. I'll give up some money. I'll give up some influence. I'll give up some popularity. I'll give up some things. Let them come forth. Would you do that this morning? That's a lot harder than coming to a front pew, isn't it? Because that has to go out of the building with you. But I hope and pray that it does. Because you and I are never going to be pleasing to God. And hear this as we close. We're never going to be pleasing to God and we don't even love Him. If all we're about is our appetites. So maybe this morning you need to respond publicly. Maybe you're not a Christian. You want to become a Christian. You want to know that you're going to be comforted someday. You've got to be a Christian in order for that to happen. You've got to obey and have a living faith in God's existing revelation to mankind, which right now is the New Testament. Are you ready to obey that gospel this morning? 
Or maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're like me and you haven't been paying attention to who's at your gate. And maybe you don't need to come forward. Maybe you just need to go out and find them. Please do that. If we can help you in any way possible this morning, would you come as we stand and sing?